You're listening to a sermon series on Judges, Broken People, Faithful God. To learn more, visit linworthroadchurch.com. Judges and Ruth are my favorite books, and you're going to get to the end of Judges and think, why in the world is this book his favorite book? Um, because it's kind of sick and twisted. Um, but it's because um, it is a beautifully rich, deep literary story with so many things going on. It was probably the first book that I ever, the Bible was opened up to my eyes of how incredible the Bible is. And so this is like the book that made me realize that the Bible was more than just a behavioral, moral story. And and that's why I love it so much, um, because that literary. As you mentioned, I'm also a high school teacher, and I'm used to teaching until the bell rings. And I haven't seen or heard bells, so we're going to be here for a long time. We are in Judges chapter 4 and 5, and that's on page 203 in the um, Bibles and the pews, if you want to go there. And please stand for the reading of God's Word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh after Ehud died. And Yahweh sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, and he lived in Harasheth Hogion. Then the people of Israel cried out to Yahweh for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time, and she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abanion, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men from Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and from the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. This is the word of God. Blessed be his word. You may sit. Lord, I just thank you so much for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word. And I would pray that... um. Your word would be a blessing to us. We know it is a blessing, but I pray that we would have the ears and the eyes to see that and experience it. Take your words and plant them deeply into our minds. And may the roots spread out into our lives, our thoughts, our words, and our deeds and begin to make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, you probably heard me say Yahweh instead of Lord. Um, That's because every single time you see the word Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is Yahweh in the Hebrew. And I only use that because that is the word in the Hebrew, and because there is no other being in the entire universe that has the name Yahweh except for Yahweh. And so it distinguishes him from all other gods. And in a book where Israel's constantly going after all the other gods over and over, I think it is fitting to distinguish him as unique and supreme to them all. So as a little review in Judges, um, we've been in this for the last couple weeks. Um, Moses, God came to Moses um, back in the book of Exodus, and he called Moses to deliver the people from Egypt. The people had been Israel, his chosen people had been in Egypt for 400 years enslaved. 
And God had promised Abraham to make them a great nation. And now God comes to Moses and says, it's time to become the great nation. It's time for me to deliver you. It's time for you to make you into my people so you may glorify my name and spread my kingdom throughout the earth. And he uses Moses to do that. And Moses brings them out of Egypt um, through the power of God. And they're brought into the wilderness where they immediately start complaining and rebelling against him and, and say, even saying things like, God only saved us so he could kill us. Okay, that's pretty jacked up. And so he brings them out, and God makes a promise, I'm going to give you land, but they're not allowed to take the land for 40 years because of their rebellion. And Joshua is the one, the, the, the disciple of Moses, who brings them into the promised land. But before they go in the promised land, Moses gives them a speech in the Deuteronomy and says, you're going to fail, and you're going to walk away from God. And I know that. And how's that encouragement for you? Um, you're supposed to say you're going to succeed. And so he prepares them for this decline. And that's what we have in the book of Judges, is each judge, there's six major ones, are getting worse and worse and worse because they're walking away from God. And as the leaders of the nation walk away from God, the people will naturally follow. Now, there will always be individual people who are the exception, like Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi in the book of Ruth. But overall, the culture will follow its leaders. And I think we can even see that in America today. And so I am doing Barak, and Barak is the beginning of getting bad. Okay, so this is where it gets worse. And so in verses 1 through 3, we're told that the people of Israel, again, and that's a repetition that you'll see over and over in Judges, again, 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 they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because no matter how many times God saves them, they keep going back to their old ways. And so we're told that now we have a new king, the King Jabin of Canaan, and he's oppressing the people. Now, there's two things that you need to know about this. First, that King Jabin is a Canaanite. Now, previously with Othniel, the first judge, the enemy that oppressed them was in the distant north above Israel. And then with Ehud, the second judge, the enemy was the Moabites, their next-door neighbors. And now the enemy lives in their own nation, among them. They're their neighbors. And so as Israel walks away from God, the enemy no longer becomes this distant enemy. It gets closer and closer and closer because they keep opening the door, just like Canaan, to our um, Cain, to let the enemy in into their lives. And so the enemy never just pops up right in your face. It always creeps in from a distance. And so the second thing that you need to know about this is the oppression is longer. It's two years longer, which you think, well, that's not that big of a deal. But as you start going deeper and deeper in the judges, it's going to become 30 years longer, 40 years longer. And the oppression gets longer and longer and longer as they walk away from God because they're depending on God less and less and less. And so we're told two people, King Jabin, who rules the Canaanites, and he has a general by the name of Sisera. Now, the general is everything. Think about like coach on a basketball team or football team. If you begin to fail as an, a team, the coach gets fired, not the players. So this, the general is like that. He is everything. A good general can make an army or break an army. And so they're oppressing them. Now, we're told that he has 900 chariots. Now, you need to understand what this means. We think big whoop. 900 chariots is the equivalent of having aircraft carriers, helicopters, and tanks, and the latest, greatest drones, technology, and warfare. And Israel doesn't have chariots, and Sisera does. 
which means there is no way that Israel has any hope of ever defeating the enemy on a purely worldwide scale, unless they're depending in God. And so that's the key here. And now what's so interesting is you need to understand as you go throughout the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 14, 17, says that the king, the leaders of Israel, are not allowed to have any horses and any chariots. And it's not that God doesn't like horses. It's that they doesn't want them to put their hope in a military technology. He wants them to put their hope in God. Now, this is very important because God, as you go throughout the Bible, you will learn more and more and more that God is constantly called the horse and the chariots of Israel. And you see that with Elijah um, when the chariot's coming down. You're going to see that with the prophets as you get into the major ones. And so God doesn't want them to have their own technological military advancement because he is it. He is their horse and chariot. And as you go through the Bible, you see God do amazing things, the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Jordan. And we're going to even see that today of God doing a miraculous thing. So the question is, will they put their hope in their own military technology and think we don't have it and they do, we're going to fail? Or will they put their hope in the God of the universe and know that nothing can stand against them? And what we're seeing is that they're not trusting in God. They're not trusting in God. And all they can see is a great power and a great enemy before them. And so that brings us to verse 4. And so now we're set up with the absolute hopelessness of the situation, the depression. This would be like the terrorists just coming in and overwhelming our country and China moving their soldiers into our country. And we just, can't, I mean, we've seen all those movies over and over again, Red Dawn, and there just seems to be no hope of anything, um, success. And that's what they feel. But God always steps in and he always redeems them all the time. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. And she used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Now the thing that you need to understand is that Deborah is called a prophetess and a judge. Now a judge is a local military political leader. Think of a, like a governor in our local sense, but also more like a tribal leader and a military leadership kind of a thing. And so they control a certain region. You need to understand is even though the Bible highlights six major judges, in this 300-year time period, there's actually hundreds upon hundreds of judges. And many of them are ruling at the exact same time, just in different regions of Israel. Like we have 50 governors all ruling at the same time in America. And so they're ruling different regions and we're told that Deborah is ruling in the southern location of Israel, which is um, Ephraim. And that's the purple that you see in the middle part of the map. And then we're told that um, Barak is going to be judging in the northern part of Israel, Naphtali, which is the orange part of the northern part of the map. And so these, they're ruling at the same time. And God only highlights six specific to point out what all the judges are pretty much like one of these six as he um, shows the decline. Now, the thing that you need to understand is that this is the only woman in the entire Bible who's ever called a judge and a prophet. This is the only time that we see a woman with military judging political power in the Bible. And there's only about five other times in the Bible that, that we ever see a woman being called a prophet. And even most of them were only temporarily a prophet for a moment that God wanted to speak to the people. 
Now, this isn't like an anti-woman thing, um, but in this culture, um, God has clearly revealed that men are the headship. And I think Chris did a great job in the Corinthians study of showing how women do have authority and they do have their right to teach and lead people, but God has called the men to be the leader, the head of his people, and especially in Israel at this time period. And so you even see the awkwardness of this woman being a military leader over Israel by the sentence. It says, Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel. That's a very awkward sentence if you don't understand grammar and Greek and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the point is he wants you to feel awkward as you're reading this because you're supposed to feel there's something wrong. Now, once again, I truly believe that women have leader. They can lead. They can have authority. They can teach. That is clearly revealed in that we are both made in the image of God, male and female. God gave Eve the ability to rule over all of creation. But once again, God has clearly revealed that the woman is, the man is the head. And so the first thing you should feel here is the men are failing. This is actually not to be a commentary on women don't have the right to be leaders. It's actually a commentary on the men fail miserably right now. The men are so apathetic, they're so lazy, they're so incompetent that God can't find a male leader. He has to use a woman. And I, don't, I know that sounds bad, and I don't mean it to sound bad, but the reality is that's the reality, that God wanted the men to be the head, and there is no men to find as a head. And, you sh- and you'll see that even more when you get to Barak, and he's kind of pathetic too. And so that's the first thing that you should feel here, is that they're ruling simultaneously. Now, she comes to him, and this is the key here. Verse 6, she sent and summoned Barak, Barak, the son of Abinom, from Kadesh Naphtali in the north, and said to them. Now, here's a question. If you go into Judges, you'll see that God speaks to Gideon. You'll see that God speaks to Samson, and he speaks to other people. Why does God have to send a messenger 60 miles north to grab Barak and bring him 60 miles south to hear a message from God so they can go 60 miles back to the north and accomplish the will of God? Maybe Barak is not listening to God. I mean, that could be reading into the text, but the, this is a three-day journey. Three days up for the message, three days down. Oh, by the way, just go back home and do what you're supposed to do. And so we get this sense that Barak doesn't really know what he's supposed to be doing as a judge. And God has to use a judge in a southern territory who actually is listening to God to get his attention and bring him back down, just to send him north. And so she gives him the command of God. Has not Yahweh, the God of Israel, commanded you, go, gather your men from Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulon, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and troops, and I will give him your into your hand. That's the promise of God. I. He, didn't, he said, you take your troops, Barak, and I will fight the battle. And that's very important. Twice he says, I will rout them, and I will defeat them. And that's my promise to you. Basically, until this battle is over with, I guarantee you that you're invincible and you will not die if you trust in me. And that's the promise that Barak has been given. And that's what he hears. And it's very important to understand. And then when God uses the name Yahweh here, he is saying, I am the absolute sovereign king of the universe. 
you do what I tell you to do. Even when God came to Moses, he told Moses, you're going to go to Egypt and you're going to deliver my people. Moses said, no, I'm not. And God goes, oh, yes, you are. Whether you like it or not, I'm going to drag you kicking and screaming there. Now, Moses ends up growing and becoming an incredible leader. But this is the God of the universe. And you don't say no. So how does Barak respond? Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. He gives God an ultimatum. He tells God, if. Now the first thing you need to know is you don't go to the king and say, I'll obey if. Okay, so this is a direct, blatant disobedience against God. But the second thing you must know is he's saying, I will only go if who goes with me? Deborah. God is not enough. The promises of God are not enough. The sovereignty of God is enough, not enough. The history of God's reputation delivering people is not enough. And so the first thing that you need to know from this story is that Barak hesitated to obey Yahweh because Yahweh's presence and promises were not enough for him. He proclaimed Yahweh as his God, but he trusted in the prophetess more. In the ancient world, it was not uncommon to believe that the prophet or the prophetess was somehow touched by the gods and had power in itself. And if you could bring this lucky charm, this rabbit's foot into battle with you, then you would be somehow guaranteed victory. There's no way that the gods would let you fail with their prophet there. And so he shows that he's trusting more in God's image, the thing God created, than in the creator himself. And as Chris mentioned last week, or a couple weeks ago, is that Israel has forgotten the rescuer. They've forgotten the rescuer. He thinks that Deborah is the rescuer. And so this shows that this man is needing this woman, but also ultimately shows that he's not trusting God. And the irony here is Barak's name means lightning flash. And he doesn't strike like a lightning bolt. He hesitates. And he needs more. And so he's not even living up to his name. He's not living up to his character. He's not living up to his hope and the promises, the desires that his parents had for him when they named him. And he ultimately, he's not obeying God. And he's hesitating. He's not trusting him. And I need you to understand this something is he believes in Yahweh. He knows Yahweh. But he does not trust him. And so the question is your own life. It is so easy to grow up in the church and come to church Sunday after Sunday and believe that God is all-powerful, that God is all-sovereign, that God loves me. But how often do you really put that out there and trust him in that? Are there times that you hesitate? God is clearly giving you a command, and you kind of, I don't know, maybe I'll try this first and that kind of stuff. Now, I know we've heard that point over and over again, but the question I want to ask you today is really seriously, don't just hear this as another point in the sermon and go home and move on. We are in a point in our culture now where many things are beginning to fail. The economy, some of our leaders, and we're beginning to lose a lot of hope. And I feel like over my friends, I feel like more and more people are losing hope for the future than ever before. Now, granted, I haven't been around for a whole lot of time, but even as I read history books and that kind of stuff, there seems to be a greater depression, a greater lack of hope. And so my question to you is this, not in a moral behavioral sense do I trust God, but in a worldview, the way that I think, the way that I operate view, do I trust God? When you look at the elections and you look at our leaders right now, 
And I would say that pretty much whether you're a Democrat or Republican, a lot of people don't think we have a good candidate to pick from. Are you losing hope of where America can be one day if we get that leader? Do you find yourself very fearful, losing hope, that there's no hope for America, that we're going down the drain because that leader gets into power? Or do you believe that, yes, we may be entering into a different time period that may be very uncomfortable, but I have peace in God? Because no matter how bad it gets, it's always been worse, and God is always good and always sovereign all the time. The question is not, do you really trust God? The question is, what do you fear losing the most? What do you fear? What will make you lose hope if this thing failed in your life? It's okay to have a good lawyer, but do you lose all hope that you'll win the court case if you don't get that lawyer? It's okay to have a good doctor and the best doctor there is. God bless them with minds. But do you lose all hope that you'll find healing if you didn't get that doctor or that hospital? It's okay to want to get your kids in the right school and you want to get in the right school. But do you lose all hope that your career and your future and that you'll ever get the job that you want if you didn't get into that college? Do we find ourselves trusting more in the right college, the right neighborhood, the right family, the right political leader, Or do we find ourselves trusting more in God? And yes, I'm not going to ignore the fact that yes, it's scary. And yes, things can get uncomfortable. And yes, there will be trials. But the reality is God uses those. Do you want a happy-go-lucky life? Or do you want to be used by God? And this is the thing with Barak. And this is what we're going to see. And because of this, Barak is going to miss out on a lot. He's going to miss out on a lot. God's not going to fail because Barak said if. Barak is going to miss out. Because he said if. And that's the question that you need to ask yourself as you go through your life. And I would challenge you to go home and really seriously think about what do I fear? What makes me lose hope? What makes me have, what are my nightmares at night? What is it that I fear the most? And that most likely is your idol. The thing that you're trusting in. And I would challenge you not just to think about behavior and ethics, but also think about what you're trusting in and the way that you think and what you're hoping in in a cultural sense. And so Barak does not flash like lightning. And so we come and Deborah recognizes this and she says, because of the way that you're going about this, the glory will not go to you, it will go to a woman. Now that's the stab in the side in a male-dominant macho culture, Okay. Now, there's nothing wrong with the woman getting in the glory, but for him, that would feel, he would feel that. And so we think that it's Deborah, right? She's the other judge. She's the other prophetess. She's going to get the glory, and Barak is not going to go. But notice that even though he disobeys, even though he does not completely trust in God, does God abandon him? No. God speaks to Deborah and says very well, I'll let Deborah go with you, and you can have Deborah, your little rabbit's foot. I'm not going to abandon you completely, Barak, but you're not going to get the glory. God loves Barak so much, and God wants to use him so much, and most importantly, God wants Barak to see what he's going to do so much, because that can change Barak, that he doesn't say, well, that's your chance, I'm done with you. He says, fine, you want your compromise? Fine, you want your little extra thing? You can have it. But most importantly, I want you to see what I'm going to do. 
And I don't want you to miss that. And so a lot of times, even though we're disobedient, don't confuse God's still using you with you're obedient. And don't think that just because you disobeyed and failed God once that he's done with you. What God wants more than anything is for you to be with him as he builds the kingdom of God so that you can see it and want to be a part of it. Whether you're failing or whether you're succeeding, that's his hope for you all the time. And so she says, I'll go with you. Now, we get this little side note, verse 11, as we're reading along. And it says, Now Heber, the Canaanite, had separated from the Canaanites and the descendants of Hobab and the father-in-law of Moses and had pitched his tent at a faraway oak at Zananan, which is near Kadesh. And you're like, I have no idea what all those names are. Here's the breakdown. In Numbers chapter 10 and in Judges 1, we're told that the Canaanites were non-Israelites and they left their people to join Israel. They're actually relatives of Moses. Remember, Moses married Zipporah, who was a Midianite, a different culture, and he had kids. And a group of that family was so impacted by Moses, their son-in-law, that they decided, I want to abandon my gods, and I want to join Israel, and I want to follow you. And the Canaanites helped Joshua so much and conquering the land, that God said, even though you're not an official tribe of Israel, I'm going to promise you and give you this plot of land. This is huge, because only the tribes of Israel got land. But God goes to these non-Israelites and says, you've been so faithful to my people, I will give you land. And so now we're being told that one of these guys, Heber, and the Canaanites, has decided to leave the rest of the Canaanites and move closer to Sisera. And the question is, why? And we don't know yet. Has he, um, most likely he's breaking ranks. Is he leaving Israel because he no longer believes in Yahweh? Is he leaving Israel because he decides he wants to live on the winning side? We don't know why he's leaving, but for whatever reason, he's defecting from Israel. And then God's done and moves on with the rest of the story. And you're like, why is that there? That's so random and out of the place. Because it's not uncommon in Hebrew poetry to kind of tell you a story and then jump over here and tell you a random story and come back and you're like, what? And then all of a sudden that story comes back into the major story and becomes a major pivotal point in the story. And that happens a lot in literature and every example I could think of were movies that you probably have never watched. So I decided not to go there. Um, so, um, but that happens a lot in literature and movies where you see this um, form of um, storytelling to jump over. So all you need to know right now is Heber is a non-Israelite who's decided to leave the faith or the God of Israel to be with the winning side. And they're going to come back into that place a little bit later. So in verse 12, when Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up from Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all of his 900 chariots of iron and all the men who were with him and from Harishoth to the river Kishon. And Deborah said, Barak, up! For this day in which Yahweh has given Sisera into your hand, does not Yahweh go out before you? So in the Hebrew it reads, lightning flash strike! You failed the first time. We flipped the light switch and it did not come on. Now, let's try it again. Now that I'm with you, will you really truly step out and obey God this time? And so she says, lightning flash strike. And it says, so Barak 
went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. He actually obeyed. Now, this is very important to understand. He has faith. It's just not the faith that God wants from him. We can't throw Barak under the bus completely and say, well, he's not a man of God. He doesn't have any faith. He does have faith. He did step out. He did obey God. But it wasn't quite the caliber and the level of absolute, total surrendering faith in God that God wanted from him. And that's why you need to understand that, yes, God uses people of faith, but he doesn't always expect our faith to be totally amazing. He wants it to be that that one day. But even the littlest faith, can do anything. Even when Jesus says, faith like a mustard seed moving out, that wasn't meant to be like encouraging, like, wow, you only need a little faith and you can do, it's meant like, even if you have pathetic faith, I can still do amazing things with you. Okay? And so he uses Barak. He uses Barak. And Barak obeys. So not all hope is lost with him. And not all hope is lost with us as we constantly beat ourselves up of not having enough faith. And knows that he's stepped out with 10,000 men but it doesn't say that the 10,000 men went out and conquered them. It says in verse 15, And Yahweh routed Sisera and all the chariots and all the army before Barak by the edge of the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. God did it, and he just happened to use their swords. That's how he routed Now, when we get to chapter 5, you're going to see God doing something even more and greater than what you are reading right now. It actually gets cooler. Now, this is important. He routed them. Now, you think, okay, that's a military term. It only appears two other times in the Bible before this story. It appears in Exodus chapter 14 when God routed the Egyptian army with the water of the Red Sea. And it appears again in Joshua chapter 10 when God routed the enemy and made them kill each, they, they killed themselves before Joshua. And so the other two times that you've seen this routed is when God has supernaturally done something to deliver his people. Barak wasn't expected to fight a battle on his own, like a lot of our militaries today. Barak was expected to go out and be used by Yahweh. And so the thing that you must understand, when God gives you a promise, go out and make disciples of the world. This is my huge weakness. I'm an introvert. And I'm sitting at McDonald's, and I hear a voice from God say, go over there and talk to that person. I'm like, heck no. Okay, this is where I feel like Barak. God, you know I'm an introvert. Introverts can't do that. But do I really truly believe that if his promise is, behold, I will be with you to the ends of the earth as you make disciples of men and women, that I can go over there, and despite my introvertedness, it doesn't matter. God is going to do, use me. I'm not going to do it. God is going to use me. And that's the question we must ask ourselves. Do we believe more in our own weakness, or do we believe more in the power of God? And I think these are the two. It's so ironic that we can so confidently believe that I can do it through my own knowledge, or if I had the right doctor, at the same time, we're also so afraid all the time to do things. And we struggle with those two things at the same time in our life, and we just end up not being effective. Not because we're, God can't use us, but we refuse to be used by God. And so God defeats him so great that this great, powerful general, who's never been defeated because of his 900 chariots, runs away scared. 
and you think the battle's over with, right? No. Because remember, a good general can raise a new army and train them. It's like Napoleon Bonaparte, the general, not the movie Dynamite. Um, Napoleon Bonaparte, the French general, he actually was a great general, and he was defeating the Habsburgs and the Austrians and the empires, and he undefeated, flanking people in a way that they had never been flanked before, and then he gets defeated. Nobody really understands why he gets defeated until you actually read a history book. And you find out the reason he got defeated is he found out his wife was having an affair and he lost all hope and just gave up and sat down in the dirt and he got defeated. So they captured him, they put him on an island, and they, the French made him, the whole French army got annihilated except for Napoleon. And they put him on the island and they wrote letters to him and forced the wife to write letters to him saying, begging for forgiveness, promise that she'll never do it again. He escaped out the island, raised a brand new army, trained them, and defeated them all over again. Because even though he had completely different men, what made the army so great was their leader. And that's why Sisera has to be defeated too. Don't think just one man big whoop. Think this is the coach of the team. This is the general of an army. He is the mind, the intelligence behind things. And he needs to be taken out. And so this, though Barak is used by God to defeat the enemy, the real true trophy enemy is Sisera. And so that brings us to verse 17. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Canaanite. Now Heber the Canaanite comes back in the picture. But what's interesting is Heber's not there. His wife is. Which is a further commentary on the man is absent, so Deborah has to rule. The man is absent, so Jael is going to be the woman. And we're told that Jael is not an Israelite. And all you know is her husband is loyal to Sisera. And so when Sisera comes, Sisera is going to find sanctuary with Jael. Because if Heber, the husband, is loyal, then Jael, the wife, is loyal. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. Look, I've never fought a battle, but I imagine how exhausting you would be after fighting a battle. And he's running for his life, which means he's using up all the adrenaline that he has, too, because he's afraid. And this woman comes out, and he recognizes her as the wife of a man who is loyal to him. And she says, come in, I'll take you, and I'll hide you. Now, this is very important, because now he's getting sanctuary. The woman's taking him in, but it's also the woman and the man would sleep in different tents at different times, because they were nomads. And it was forbidden for any man that was not the husband to even enter into the tent of the wife. That would, that would be so no one would ever think to look for a man that is not her husband in her tent because that would violate everything taboo in the culture. And so this is like the best hiding place that you could ever find if the husband doesn't come home and kill you. So, um, so she flees into the tent and he, she brings him in and covers him with a blanket and says, sleep, sleep, I will watch out and I will let you know if somebody comes and attack you. And he asks for water. And she gives him milk. Now, you have to understand this culture, they have no sugar. And if you've ever drank milk straight from the cow, it's much sweeter than our watered-down grocery store milk. And if you haven't been pumped full of sugar your entire life, then it tastes even sweeter. And they, their only sweets in the land are really honey and milk. And so to eat honey and milk, and honey is very sweet straight from the honeycomb. 
And without sugar violating your taste buds all the time, this is incredibly sweet. So this is like going to somebody's house, and you say, oh, I'm so thirsty from cutting the grass. Can you give me water? And they're like, oh, you are my honor, Gus. Yes, I'm going to break out the $1,000 bottle of wine and caviar for you. Milk was extremely expensive, extremely rare, and considered an aphrodisiac. And so she's rolling out the red carpet, giving them the best room, and all for free. And you think, it doesn't get any better than this. And I will protect you. But, verse 21, Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, which is about nine inches long, and took a hammer in her hand, and she went up softly to him, and she drove the tent peg into his head, and driving it into the ground. And he wakes up dead. I... For whatever reason, she did not agree with her husband's political stance. And she uses deception to invite him in and nails him to the ground, this tent wife. Now, some people debated whether a woman can really drive a tent peg through some man's skull. But if you study the culture, well, one, that's really demeaning to women. And two, if you study the culture, it was the woman's job to set up all the tents. If you've ever been to Israel, there's only about three inches of soil, and everything under that is bedrock. So if you're like a nomad, and every couple weeks you're just slamming tent pegs into the ground all the time, you're going to have tennis arm, okay? And so this is not a problem, especially going through the temple. And so this is graphic. This is violent. This is bloody. If they made this in a movie, you would never let your kids watch the Bible. And so the reality is, but she does it. And we're never told her motives. Does she really believe in Yahweh? Or does she believe that she she see the political tides turning and want to be on the new winning side? Does she just hate Sisera because she doesn't like the way he looks? We don't know her motives. All we know is that she steps out and without hesitation, she does what Barak could not do. And the irony here is, that says, verse 22, And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera so that he could have the victory, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg sticking out of his temple. And all you can remember is, because of the way that you've gone about this, the glory will go to a woman. And not a powerful, respected culturally respected prophetess but a culturally everyday normal woman and that would suck the pride out of your system and so the second point that God is making in this story is through JL we see that Yahweh can use anyone to accomplish what he wants for nothing can stop the word of God and you need to understand something God wants to use you. But if you hesitate enough, and you back off enough, and you disobey enough, he'll find somebody else. Could it be that God is using Chinese Christians and African Christians and South American Christians more in the world today in evangelism than he is using American Christians because we have hesitated and depended on our culture more than what they are doing, and they'll do anything for a page of the Bible. 
because they want him that badly. And so God can use anyone. When we get to chapter 5, chapter 4 ends. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. God used a person that you would never expect. And just like Ehud, you wouldn't expect the left-handed man, but God used him. Just like Ehud, the same Hebrew word that he drove the sword into her, him, she drove the tent peg in. He, God is reminding you of that. And he uses a non-Israelite. You think only the church can be used by God. Anybody can be used by God. It's that God has chosen the church. And the church is supposed to know God and be able to communicate who God is more effectively than anybody else. But if we don't step up, God will use the world. And even the most pagan person you could ever think of, God can use that person because God is that sovereign and that supreme. And that is very important to understand because in verse chapter 5, we're told that the leaders took lead in Israel. The people offered themselves willingly. Bless Yahweh. Hear, O kings, give ear of the princes. To Yahweh I will sing. I will make melody to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yahweh, when you went out from Seir, and when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before Yahweh, even Sinai before Yahweh, the God of Israel. So the poem that Deborah begins to sing starts off by praising Yahweh, and it portrays Yahweh as this cosmic giant who's coming from Mount Sinai. Now, Mount Sinai is over 300 miles south of Israel. And it's the first time that God ever appeared to them and Moses when they came out of Egypt. And he was not limited to that mountain, but that's where he chose to reveal himself. And so the poem starts off by saying, Yahweh comes from Sinai, from that great experience that we had. That same God came to our country and he defeated the enemy. No matter how far away you think God is in our culture today, it's just one step back in if you think he's gone. And he's not gone, but it's not hard for him to traverse the universe. And he comes, and it says that he used the storm, and he used the rain. And when you get into verse 22 and 23, we're told that he flooded the river Kishon, and the river wiped them out, which should immediately remind you of the Red Sea crossing and the Jordan crossing of, with Joshua. And what you realize is that Barak, when he killed the enemy with a sword, he was killing the leftovers. The army had been completely defeated by a flooding river. And over and over again, as you go through the Bible, you see God using trees, rivers, storms, and even the enemy themselves to kill the enemy. And this brings us to the third point. Sometimes, when Yahweh gives you a command, he wants you to do the work in obedience. But most of the time, he wants you to just step out in faith and be amazed as he accomplishes the impossible in a way that is greater than you could ever imagine. God used Jael in a way that you couldn't imagine. God used the storm in the river in a way that you couldn't imagine. I mean, this takes you back to Lord of the Rings, okay? And he defeated the enemy because as you see with Gideon later and other enemies later, most of the time when God says, go and do the impossible, and you think, oh my gosh, there's no way I can do that. He doesn't want you to actually do it. 
He just wants you to say anything is possible through Yahweh, and I want to be a part of his kingdom. And you step out on faith, and God then just ends up doing it, and you just have front row seats. Because God it can always accomplish more than you can ever imagine. And so as you hesitate, as you live in fear, as you think, I can't, or that's not my strength, I want you to think more and more often by God can do anything. And I need to just trust him. And most of the time, I'm just going to be amazed by the incredible things. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten up and things just come out of the mouth, and I was like, I didn't know that. <laughs> but God was the Holy Spirit speaking. Nervousness that I had as an introvert, and yet it went away in that conversation. And God will use you, and he wants you to work. But most of the time, he'll do something so amazing and so supernatural you can't imagine it. Because all he really, truly wants from you is for you to join him. In the same way that your kids, you want them to join you. But most of the time, you end up doing the work when they're young. And that's what he wants. He just wants you by his side. He wants you to see what he can do so that you will be amazed and you'll draw closer to him. He doesn't need you. He wants to use you. And so as we go through this poem, he constantly, Deborah steps up and talks about all the nations that didn't join them, all the tribes, showing Israel's decreasing faith and trust. But the point ends with this. God accomplished. And Barak hesitated. And this is what you must understand. Barak Barak did not hinder Yahweh and what he wanted to accomplish. Rather, Barak missed out on being a part of what Yahweh wanted to accomplish and thus missed out on the blessings. Most of the time, God does not punish you for disobedience. Most of the time, you just miss out on the really cool things he was doing. Just like most of the time, when your kids are being disobedient, the punishment is time out. And they miss out on all the fun things the family is doing. And they miss out on the pool party. They miss out on the dessert. They miss out. You don't beat them down. You don't punish them. You don't take everything away. You don't put them in jail. You put them in timeout. And they miss out on all the really cool things that your family is doing. And that's how God works. You will never hinder the word of God. You will never hinder what God is doing if you say, but only if. Or, oh my gosh, the country's going down the drain with that leader. Oh my God, there's no way it can be healed with that doctor. You will never hinder God. Things will keep moving on. The kingdom will still be built. God will use other people. But the greatest detriment to you is not the punishment that this God has for you, but the blessings that you're going to miss out on, the experiences you're going to miss out on, the story that you're going to be a part of, the family that you can be accepted into. And so please do not let your trust in God be motivated by a fear of punishment. Your trust in God should be motivated by the fact that God loves you so much that he actually wants you to join him. And that he loves you so much that he wants you to experience his blessings. And that's what Barak missed out on. He's not a horrible person. It's not like he's worshiping other gods. He's just a meteoric or a Christian who hesitated and trusted in the culture, had to offer more than God. And he only got what the culture had to offer, and he missed out on what God had to offer. And so the question is, do you want, if you really truly believe that Yahweh is supreme, if you really truly believe these things that we sing and these devotionals that we have, 
then do you really want to be a part of the kingdom of God? Do you really want to be a part of the things that God is doing? And if you have that mentality and that perspective, then you don't lose hope when you watch the economy tanking and the news. You think, yes, it's going to get bad, and that's scary for me and my kids. But yes, God's going to do amazing things. Even if a foreign enemy oppresses us with 900 tanks, God is going to do something amazing. And the worse it gets means the cooler the thing that God can do. And I would challenge you in this culture today, stop trusting in the culture. Stop trusting in the American dream. And start trusting in the Yahweh that we truly proclaim as all-loving and all-powerful and unique to all others. And let your hope come from that and not what we see in the news. Let us pray. Yahweh, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you are absolutely supreme over all things. And I would pray that we would be able to trust you. That we would step out and not just say with words that I believe and I trust. And not just work on our ability to stop being a sinner. But to really truly in our worldview, in our actions, in our words, in our thoughts and deeds, in our hope, in our joy, in our peace, to truly say that I expect to see God at work because he always is at work. And I want to be used by him. And if Samuel can bring revival to the culture of the judges and the book, then imagine what we can do in this country if we really truly stepped out in trust. And I pray that you would sink that deep into our hearts and make us less and less of a barrack and more and more of your image. In Jesus' name, amen.